Hello, everybody. I am Joe List. I'm talking into a microphone all by myself. Don't want to be. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Mindful Metal Jacket. This is um, a special intro. I am standing. This is the first time I've ever recorded the intro while standing. I look like a psychopath. I'm in my friend Derek's kitchen in West Seattle, Washington. And um, his daughter is doing homeschooling uh, just not too far from me. And I'm standing. It looks like I'm doing stand-up comedy. I'm just standing in the kitchen out here visiting, trying to feel normal. You know what I mean? We're like, fuck it. Let's just come visit. We get COVID. We get COVID. Uh, so far, so good. Wear our masks on the plane. I don't know. Planes feel safe. It's strange, though, that you can fly on a plane but not go. I don't know. Who knows? But that's neither here nor there. Uh, we're spiking everywhere. Hopefully that you're uh, you're healthy, taking precautions, feeling safe, are safe. Anyways, I'm here in West Seattle visiting my dearest friend and his wife and his kids and, and trying to help out. And uh, I have to say the homeschooling seems pretty, pretty fun, actually. She's on the computer. She has little glasses that protect her eyeballs from looking at the computer screen all day. Kind of neat. Didn't even know that was a thing. But uh, how are you doing? I hope you're doing well. I hope you're staying safe. It's not so bad, right? Maybe it's not so bad. Maybe I'm coming from a place of privilege. Hmm? But uh, or maybe maybe it's just not all so bad. It's a beautiful day here in West Seattle. Went for a run with Sarah, Lincoln Park, one of the most beautiful parks I've ever spent time in. Spent a lot of time there. West Seattle is sort of a home away from home, and uh, it feels nice to visit some friends. We were supposed to go on vacation first week that uh, or the week after everything shut down. We were going to go to the tennis tournament out in uh, Palm Springs, Indian Wells, and uh, hang out at a casino resort. And instead, this whole thing happened. And uh, so just seeing each other for the first time. But, you know, do you have this with friends? You go, and after a while, you got to go be with them. It's been one full year. My nephew, who is named Joe, the greatest honor of my life, is four and a year has passed. 25% of his life has passed since I've seen him. So at some point, you got to go see some friends, particularly if they're not um, high risk or whatever. Even if they are, I think, I don't know. What do I know? See some friends, see some family, be grateful for them, reach out to them. It's nice to be with them. And uh, that's the theme of this intro, at least. Gratitude for friends, lifelong friends, family. How fun is it? Last night we had dinner, six of us at the dinner table, having pizza, making jokes, farting, just a million laughs. And uh, hopefully you get a chance to do that with some of your friends or family, whoever you love. Hopefully you're doing that. Um, speaking of people I love, today's episode, comedian Andy Haynes, who I think is from Seattle, uh, which I'm just putting together in this moment. He's a Seattle guy. I think he started doing comedy in Seattle absolutely hilarious comedian, Andy Haynes. After you're done enjoying this, go seek him out. He's done some late nights. He has an album called Greatest Hits, which is a funny name for an album. And uh, 
it's great. He's one of the great joke writers we talk about towards the end, but he's uh, made me laugh. One of the hardest I've ever laughed in my life was a tweet of his that I don't even remember, uh, but it was during the Oscars. And uh, we'll talk about that in the episode. And uh, it was a great episode. We talked about a lot of stuff. Easy conversation. I love Vandy. Don't uh, get to see him too much. And um, it was nice to get to know him even a little better. Had a good conversation and uh, somebody I always enjoy his comedy. And uh, I remember years ago telling Norman, I'm like, this guy is like underrated. So funny. Um, so go check out his album or his late nights and his podcast. He's uh, married to Rosebud Baker, past guest. And uh, they have a podcast together called Find Your Beach. So check that out. I think you'll enjoy it. And I uh, hope you enjoy this episode. And I encourage you to plan a trip to go visit some friends. Even if you have to quarantine before, after, during, whatever it is, get tested, wear a mask, you know, whatever. Go see some close friends you haven't seen in a while or call them up and enjoy it. And um, I've been walking in the woods a bunch here in Seattle. It's just one of the most special places to me in the world. And so it always makes me think of my number one man, Henry David Thoreau, the naturalist. I believe in New Englander. Here's a little love from Henry David Thoreau. Aim above morality. Be not simply good, but be good for something. Hmm? Bring a little good. Be of service. Reach out to somebody. Help someone out. Go see if you can uh, help someone out right now or after you listen. Listen to Andy Haynes and reach out to somebody and offer some help. It'll feel good for you and for them. All right. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. And, uh, oh, I should plug some things, but I forgot to. Anyways, it's not about me. It's about you. I love you. Enjoy this conversation with Andy Haynes. This is it. Hi, buddy. Andy Haynes, everybody. I will have given you a, a wonderful intro and said how great okay. you are. Well, I'm going to listen just to make sure yeah. <laughs> that it's wonderful. <laughs> it's hard not to, when you record the intro, to not be thinking like, all right, they're listening. So definitely try to nail it. I feel like I always had this, like, whenever I asked somebody, um, when I did like a solo podcast, I would always try to get like kind of like people with gravitational pull. And then I'd be like, they're not even going to retweet it, you know? <laughs> and then they would, they'd be super gracious and things like that. But my initial reaction is like, they're doing a favor for me because they feel sorry for me. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's hard not to, it's, it's weird. Sarah and I always talk about this because we're comics and sometimes she'll do something, uh, a video thing or a podcast and be like, yeah, so-and-so hasn't gotten back to me. It's been like three hours. And I'm like, well, we have to keep in mind a lot of the times when someone asks one of us to do something, we walk around going, ah, fuck, I don't want to do this fucking thing. Like, yeah, I'm like, yeah. it is possible that they're sitting there going, shit, I got to respond to this thing. And it's also, I all the time will like get something and I want to do it, but I want to answer artfully or something. And so I'll just like put it away. Just not answer for two days or something like that. Yeah. I'm bad with that too. And anything, 
I mean, I'm a horrible procrastinator. I read this book. I've been talking about this book a lot on this podcast called uh, Running on Empty. You ever hear of that book? No. Oh, it might be interesting to you. I don't know that much about you. I hope to learn more about you here. But um, there's a book by Jonas Webb called Running on Empty. And I did, I did WTF. And immediately some woman emailed me. I was like, you need to read this book. You have emotional neglect. Um, I don't know if you've ever read about emotional neglect at all, but <clears throat> I would love to know more about it. Is it you are the victim of emotional neglect? Yeah, basically, it's like you're I, I don't know about your parents, but basically it was like I was talking about this feeling of like self-doubt and hatred and alcoholism. And then she's like, yeah, it sounds like you probably have emotional neglect. And I kind of described my parents or whatever. And basically it's about, you know, your parents weren't abusive. But maybe uh, this is the book. I'm not saying you, but maybe they just didn't give you exactly what you needed or some of the emotional things you needed. And that's the no, book. That's 100% my parents. <laughs> I had a feeling, but <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to bring it up delicately, but you know, uh, yeah, no, it's uh, that's like very much the same story uh, for me. Like, what's the, but the, does the book outline? the kind of like the the methods of dealing with it. Yeah, basically it's a great book if you want to be a parent also, but because it, it helps you deal with what kind of went on with you, like why you have, if you have that genuine general feeling of like emptiness or I'm not doing enough, or maybe you have trouble connecting with feelings or emotions or whatever. A lot of that comes from like, you just didn't get certain things and it gives a lot of different examples of like ways that things are emotionally neglectful. Like one is even like, and this comes back to procrastination. This is what I was just reading about is that maybe your parents or my parents didn't give me like, you have to finish your homework before you can watch TV, like those kinds of things. Yeah. So when I have something to do now, I'm like, ah, I'll just do it later. Cause it was never instilled in me. Like, no, you have to get those things done. Yeah, I uh, I was mad at my parents for the entirety of my early 30s because I was like, why did nobody ever tell me like I never got like a lesson in finance or discipline, like everything I've ever done. It was because I wanted to do it. And then I would usually do it until it got kind of boring. And then I would be like, oh, OK, on to the next hobby or whatever. And then I meet all these people who have been like, like, especially people that like, uh, when I wanted to like write for TV, all these people that were like, well, I loved TV when I was a kid. And so my dad bought me this book of Seinfeld scripts. And then they, you know, he, he said, if you want to do something, you got to do it right. And so he, you know, like that guidance or even simple things like just, you know, finance, saving money, getting ready for adulthood. I don't have bad parents. They just, you know, they didn't tell me anything. Yeah, that's kind of what this book is about. And because that's what like, um, plagued me. And that's what I think I talked about in WTF that made this lady write to me was that kind of thing that I have. I've, I talk about this a lot in therapy, too, where I'm like, how did I end up with like horrific anxiety and panic and alcoholism and herpes? Uh, that one I added on for comedic effect. But like, <laughs> how did I end up with these things? My parents were great. Like they were always around. Yeah. They came to every track meet. They were, they're still together. So, and again, it's not like they're, they're not bad parents, but so I would blame myself. Like, Oh, I'm a piece of shit. I'm an idiot. I should be more grateful. I shouldn't. So something's wrong with me. And instead it's like, realize like, Oh, maybe you just didn't get 
the proper reaction or attention or whatever it is. Or you need to microdose. That's probably what it is. I've been told that before. Did you ever try? Did you ever try that? No, I just regular dosed a couple times and then uh, I got sober. So I, I think I definitely wanted to. I mean, there was like portions of my sobriety where I kind of was like, you know, I could like take a little bit of mushrooms and not be going out because like the in Europe, they like have uh, antidepressants that are based off of uh, psilocybin. And so I was like, oh, that's, you know, I could do that. But I think I really just wanted to get fucked up. And, you know, I was doing that drug addict thing where you kind of you you try to figure out a loophole kind of thing. Yeah, completely. Well, I, I'm a huge uh, Sam Harris guy and I talk about him a lot on the podcast, but I love like the waking up app is one of the best things I've ever discovered. And I love and I love him and his podcast. But he's a guy that talks about the 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 wonder of mushrooms and psychedelics and how you can immediately get rid of not uh, you know duality and all these amazing things so it gets in my head of like well maybe i ought to try that um, yeah. but i'm like i have the same thing i'm like well my intention is to you know be at one and and lose ego and all that stuff and then i have to remind myself like no nah, no nah, nah, you'll be all fucked up and then you'll come down and then want to do it again the next day and you'll probably then yeah. be like well i was fucked up yesterday i might as well drink and then <laughs> then you know i'll be whatever the wherever the fuck that leads yeah for sure oh. i uh i do think that you know those things have like powered powerful properties but that's just not how i would do them you know i just like I did every time I did mushrooms, I came away like with a positive experience. I was very like careful about the way I did them. And I think like there was something kind of like hard to describe about the like kind of profound realizations I would have. But at the same time, I think they were only profound because they were like immediate versus like when I do hard work and in, in a 12 step program or a lot of therapy. And then one day I kind of realized like, oh, I, I was in like a very, uh, confrontational experience or something that could have been a big deal. And I kind of navigated it or I had like a year where I, you know, I didn't really focus on a bunch of negative stuff. And then I'm like, Oh, I feel like that's the same thing. It's just kind of this warp speed, temporary fix for those bigger problems. Yeah, exactly. And that's what he says too, is uh, you can get there through meditation. And his big thing is you can actually get there quickly and he takes issue with some of this is just turning into Sam Harris's podcast, but he seems to take issue with some of the idea of like going on retreat, a meditation retreat for 90 days or a year or three years. And, and this idea that if you keep uh, meditating for years and years and years, you can eventually reach enlightenment. And his big thing is like, no, you can actually reach it pretty quickly if you understand what you're looking for. And it's sort of the, um, you know, the non-duality of like, I am me, like I talk about it a lot and try to explain it way less well than he does. But the idea of like, uh, I'm not my body and I'm not my thoughts. My thoughts are this thing. I was, I was thinking this and it's like, it's yeah. all just appearances and consciousness basically. And this is, we're all just experiencing consciousness essentially. And you can get there through meditation, but his big thing is taking 
mushrooms or um, ayahuasca or whatever the hell, you can kind of see it quickly through the help of drugs. And that allows you to meditate in that way, knowing that it exists. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like it's such a, it's such a bummer. Cause I, you know, I kind of eye roll at all those guys with the, <laughs> with the, with the mushrooms guys, you know, the hallucinogenic guys, like, I know that Sam Harris is like adjacent to Rogan. I don't, I haven't listened to Harris, but um, I feel like that whole DMT kind of strip the ego thing. Like, I, I don't know if it's as productive as they say it is because it's like, I know a lot of guys that are kind of like fans of that. And there's like a weird, it's like a half of evolution, you know? It's like, we're all molecules and we're part of the same matter, but like, I will kick a motherfucker's ass, you know? <laughs> what? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I guess that's the thing. That's the difference, I guess, between like a steady meditation practice and going out and, and doing DMT or whatever, or ecstasy in the woods is that um, eventually that goes away and then you're back to just whatever thought process you had before. Whereas like a daily meditation can kind of keep you in that space. Yeah. I need to meditate more. I used to do it a lot and I kind of, um, I just stopped prioritizing it and, uh, it was so good. It's just boring. You know, it's just like hard for me to be like, it's like brushing my teeth or something. It's like, I, I'm just not like, I don't want to do it. I love it. I, brushing my teeth is like kind of a bad analogy because I, I brush my teeth regardless, but um, I brush my teeth every three days, regardless of what, <laughs> how I'm feeling. Uh, but you know, like, it's just, I never wake up and I'm like, oh, I want to sit down and breathe, even though I know it's going to make me feel way better. See that that's what, that's what um, his app is great. Cause Sam Harris has like his podcast where he does whatever has whatever conversations and stuff. But the waking up app is just a 10 minute meditation and it sticks with meditation and that kind of stuff. Um, and there's no real, you know, opinions or whatever. So that's great. But I've gotten into that habit and I was doing it before with the Calm app, which is also great. And I still use that occasionally. But I finally, after like years and years of trying to meditate and be a meditation guy, have gotten into the practice of waking up, meditating first thing. And it really does uh, help. But now there's a lot of times where I don't want to do it. And I'm like, it's 10 minutes, you fuck, just, just do it. And I have the rest of my day to plan or do whatever. Yeah. And then uh, do you do it at night? Um, not really. Sometimes I'll do like a mid afternoon or at night, but now, now it's sort of, it's been built into me the ideas of like coming back to the breath and pausing in between, uh, activities or before starting a new activity. I mean, I'm obviously not perfect with it, but it definitely has helped a lot. And I have to constantly be, I'm like, I feel like I finally understand religion now where I'm like, I need a constant reminder of like, oh wait, just, <laughs> just breathe, slow down. Yeah. And um, I always got to have some kind of like Buddhist meditation book around to kind of remind yeah. myself about that stuff. I listened to this guy, uh, Josh, uh, he's with the Dharma punks. I forgot what his name is, Josh something, but it, his is a lot of like, uh, psychology mixed with Buddhist philosophy and kind of like talking about the science of psychology and how it applies to Buddhists. Um, but he's got the Dharma punks kind of have like a culty vibe. I, I used to go to their, uh, meditation meetings. 
Um, and I loved him, but there was like a weird kind of cult of personality and stuff like that. Um, I, I definitely am attracted to that stuff. I'm, I have a really hard time slowing down. Like I'll get, I'll like sleep five hours, wake up, do this very demanding physical labor job. And then I'll come home and I'll be like, Oh, I got to do the laundry and take out the trash. And I said, I would write that guy an email. And, uh, I, I wanted to cook dinner tonight. So I have to start this thing. And it's just like, I, I took no time to like slow down and be here and enjoy life. I'm just exhausted, you know? Yeah. I have that problem too. I have uh, serious problems really relaxing and enjoying myself, especially I think our business, I try not to be like our business. Um, Cause I feel like most businesses are like that. Colin Quinn's a guy that's always helpful in reminding. He's like, that's every business. Every bu- We think we're so special because <laughs> you're like, that guy got SNL. And he's like, plumbers are like, that guy got to do that fucking gig. That guy sucks <laughs> at plumbing. Like, he's like, everybody has that. So I try not to be like, too like, well, in show business, it's this. But it is a thing of like, I'm like, let me watch a movie. I'm going to watch the debates or watch the baseball game. Last night I was watching the World Series and I'm like, I'm still like, well, let me have my phone nearby just in case I want to tweet. Maybe I can get a tweet going. That'll get something. I'm still constantly thinking about that. And the same thing in between innings, I'm like, I should do push-ups in between innings. That way I'm kind of working out. <laughs> and it's so much of it for me is like, you're a piece of shit. You're lazy. Everyone's better than you. Everyone hates you. So let me try to get my body in, in shape and, and get some tweets, get some likes. Do you have that? Yeah, is yeah. that similar? A hundred, like I am never satisfied with any, like I, you know, the fact that I don't make all my money from comedy and I don't like have a nice apartment in the West village and, you know, get to do whatever I want to do. Basically in my mind, I'm just a complete failure. Like I have to be constantly reminded I'll get to do something very cool. And then, you know, I'll be like, but I have to like, still like, work next week because I like subsidize comedy with this manual labor job, which I actually love. I really, I, I really do enjoy the job a lot, but I'm, you know, I'm ashamed of it because I feel like right. I have friends who they just like, they go to studio lots, they ride on a show Thursday, they fly into a weekend, they own their house. And we basically did all the same things. They were just more uh, jovial, <laughs> grateful, <laughs> and easy to work with. And, you know, I, I think it's also very hard to, like, it's hard to be your funniest self when you're up your own ass all the time. Like, I, I used to have this big chip on my shoulder because I was like, I'm, I'm punctual and I, and I try to, you know, do the right thing. And I'm like, why, why don't I have the big money job and things like that. And we don't work in the punctual business. We're not in the, uh, you, you did all the good things. You're a good boy business. We did the, you are funny and you captivate people and there's something magnetic about you. You know what I mean? Or what your ideas, et cetera. So that's not like a, I didn't pick, you know, the admin job. I, I picked the be entertaining job. <laughs> right. And to be fair also though, I think our business is also extremely unfair in other ways too. Cause that, that implication is that you're not captivating or not funny, which of course you are. There's also other factors in that. Uh, we already have a guy that looks kind of like you. So sorry. Yeah, you're yeah. out. So just, I just want to 
protect your feelings here again. That um, no, no, let's. You're, um, <laughs> I'd love it if you just pulled me guy. apart throughout this podcast. <laughs> you just did you know mental uh, gymnastics, and by the end of it, I didn't know exactly how you'd hurt me, but I kind of was <laughs> nauseous. <laughs> well, but I mean, it's, but to say you know. Uh, you are funny. It's not like they're just like, these guys are funnier than you. You were on time. And then these people were better than you as a comic or a writer. There's also sometimes, can, you know, you other factors. relate to this. I mean, I think you're an amazing standup. I, I, I genuinely listen to your albums. Oh, thank you. Usually a couple times. Um, and I steal jokes, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, only when I'm like doing a real shitty road gig and, um, no, uh, I, it, I, I remember back in the day seeing you, this is before I moved to LA when you were drinking and stuff. And um, you were kind of like, you kind of had a reputation as like a dark comic. I felt like, like, I, I feel like I, I kind of thought of you as like, I think it was more that you were kind of, you were drinking, you were kind of a road dog. Yeah. yeah. But um, did you ever have that feeling back then where you were like, why do I, why can't I just write dumb, happy jokes that the dumb, happy people get, you know, like, I don't want that now, but there's times where I'm like, you know, like I would just, I don't want to play colleges, but it seems nice, but I've never had an act. I'm always talking about how, like, I can't like how I sit down in the shower because my parents got divorced or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I've never been a college guy and never done well there. I, I feel like I do okay there when I do do colleges do do. Um <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I guess I don't know if I was a dark act. I think I was a dark person. That's for sure. I think that's what it was, probably. I mean, I guess I had some death in there. I mean, I had jokes about people getting hit by cars and such. Um, but I, I don't know. Also, I remember you having like war stories about the road, just like drunken, debaucherous war stories, kind of stuff. Yeah, completely. I mean, that's what I. That's what I thought. I mean, this is why I was such a some part of why I was a fuck up for so long was I thought that was like charming and, and part of it that yeah. it was like, yeah, man, fuck comics are crazy. And then what happens is people are, you know, not staying out all night, not drinking and like creating YouTube channels and Twitter followings and stuff. Like I didn't start using Twitter until I was dating Sarah. So like 2011, which is pretty late. It's like, I just had an account cause someone told me to, and I was like, that's for fucking pussies. Get out of here. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I was talking about this the other day. Like I was on the road with DePaulo and I was drunk and crazy. And I was like, I got to quit. This is, I'm a maniac. And he was like, no, no, that's what I like about you. You're, you're nuts. He's like, you're, you're a crazy guy. <laughs> and it made me like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to, I got not to blame. I'm not blaming DePaulo on why I drank for so long in my career, but I definitely was like, he's right. That's what we yeah. are. We're, we're fucking nuts. And I, I, I want to be like Kinnison and, and Bill Hicks. Yeah. I remember I, I was reading uh, somebody, it was like some account of Russell Banks, the, uh, the guy who wrote like affliction. He's a really great author. If you haven't read him, he's got this great book called the rule of the bone. Um, but he's got a ton of great books. And, um, but they were talking about him at, like a maybe it was like a book reading or something like that and he was like just a drunken asshole but like nobody could really do anything about it because he was such a talented writer and i i remember as like a you know early 20s being like that's that's me i'll be i'll just be like the 
I'll be the problem, but like, I'll be, you know, kind of like uh, immune to consequences because I'll be so good at what I do. But I never actually, going back to what we said earlier, I never had the discipline to do the thing that made you, you know, inexcusable or whatever, like, or excusable, I guess the term would be like, you know, I, I've never had that thing. You you hear about these like authors or these comedians or stuff, you know, and they just couldn't put a pen down. You know, they couldn't, they didn't sleep. They just, you know, they, they stayed up till the wee hours writing until they fell asleep at their desk. And it's like, I've never had that. I just had the like dopamine rush. Like I want to, I want the gifts of the work and, and not the hard work. hundred percent. I mean, I, I, uh, identify with that more than anything. Like I, I feel that way. With every single thing I've ever tried, I feel like with mandolin, I took mandolin lessons for a few months and I'm like, ah, fuck, I can't do it. I just want to be good at, at, yeah. at, at, at playing music and comedy. Same thing. I wanted to direct movies and write movies. And the reason I did pursue comedy and people will be like, no, that's crazy. But th- that I feel like I succeeded at comedy is it did feel like the easiest of all the things I wanted to do. It still does. And podcasting too. Podcasting and stand up are the easiest of like, it's hard to make a film. It's hard to write a film. I wanted to be a baseball player. That was hard to be a musician, even an actor. Like, but stand up, it's like, all right, I can go up there and just say some of the things I've been thinking about or podcasts. You can kind of do yeah. it. Yeah. Once you kind of figure out that through line, like that kind of philosopher's stone of who you are, then it's it's pretty easy to keep that going. I mean, I think it's hard to like elevate yourself beyond what you accomplished the last time. But like if, if people just need you to go up and be consistently funny and you kind of know who you are, that's like, a, you know, that's, that's, it's not easy, but it's easy. It's a lot easier than like, I, I've produced, you know, a couple sketches throughout my career, like maybe like one or two where I really like had a crew and I really like carried and it took days and 10 people and a thousand dollars. And then it was all right. right. It was an all right sketch. Right, like right. it didn't get, you know, it didn't get a, like a ton of views or anything like that. And I just was like instantly like, oh, I don't want to do that. Like that's fucking hard. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's overwhelming. The idea of like finishing I, I, when quarantine first happened or lockdown, whatever the fuck it was, I wrote like 88 pages of a movie I've always wanted to write. And that was really cooking. And then um, I had a friend that I thought was going to help me make it. So I was like, I'm going to fucking make the movie. And then he kind of <laughs> faded on it. And I was like, ah, who was I kidding? Anyways, whatever. I'll just do a podcast. That's easier. I'll just die. <laughs> Yeah. And it is hard. This happened to me the other day is my manager called and was like, Hey, so-and-so wants like a writing sample. They enjoyed your special. Send me, send me some writing samples. And I had that moment of literally like, I don't have anything. <laughs> like I don't have anything. I got nothing. Yeah. I'm like, I had a script. I wrote a pilot. I wrote in 2008 that I barely, I don't even think I finished. I have a movie that I wrote a few months ago that I didn't finish. And I'm like, I shot, I, I wrote one short film earlier that is something. And I was like, send him that. And then sending my ultimate warrior, you know, <laughs> sketch yeah. that I did that I was improvised. Um, <laughs> and then you start to hate yourself. Cause you're like, God, I've been doing, I've been in comedy for 20 years and I don't have anything to show for it in the writing department. Yeah. I, I, um, 
I'll write something. I, I've been okay. You know, I'll get like a script out every two years and they were really bad. I, I had no foundations and I, I really wanted to like, you know, I didn't want to do the hard work, but I, I, I sat down and wrote a couple good scripts. But when I would send them off to friends to give notes, the friend would give me a note that was kind of like a lot of work, you know, like I had to rework an entire character or like a piece of the story. And I would get furious at myself because I hadn't saw that, you know, that I hadn't seen the hole in the story or the, the, the lack of uh, realness and whatever it was, there was something missing that I couldn't see. And the fact that I couldn't see that after all this time trying, I, it, the fact that I'm just not good at it, it made me furious. Like I, I remember uh, when I was like eight or something, it was like whenever the movie Little Man Tate came out. And Little Man Tate is like this, uh, if you haven't seen it, Jodie Foster plays like kind of a single uh, problematic, not problematic in the political sense, but like she's, she's not, a, she's like a struggling single mother and she has a genius son. And um, I was like, I, I turned to my mom and I said, mom, I want to be a genius. And she said, well, you're not. And uh, I have tried to make up for that my entire life. Just like, I just want I just want to be the thing already, you know? Yeah, no, I, I feel that way all the time. I mean, I've been doing mixed martial arts for like a year and a half now, a little over a year. And I just train one-on-one -on -one with, you know, Diego Lopez. He's a comic. I know who he is. I don't know him. He's a great guy, funny guy, but I train with him. Like I get furious. Cause we'll like, we'll spar just stand like boxing, basically sparring. And he's just like, tuning me up and i'm like i can't fucking do it and, and it, it, that's like his whole life too yeah and he's like he's a, doing it for a decade and you're furious that you can't do it he yeah does. he's like an he's like an undefeated cage fighter and i'm like it doesn't even make sense like i i, I can't and <laughs> i always use the analogy i was a baseball player like when you're in like a slump and you're at the plate and i'm like it looks like there's 25 guys out there like i can't even fathom how anybody could fucking get a base hit. That's how I feel like sparring where you're like, he, I can't block his punch and I can't hit him. It's impossible. And so I just, but you have to go. Yeah, but you, you suck. So you're getting better. And he gives me a, a, a thing that helps me is like, he's like, imagine you fighting you from a year ago, you would fucking destroy yourself. So I do, you do have to look at that of like, all right, well, we're progressing, I guess, as, artist or whatever it is we're trying to do yeah i'm really looking forward to like age 44 i think that's when i'm gonna hit my sweet spot <laughs> just be completely in demand you know yeah how old are you now i'm 38 <clears throat> oh wow we're the same age how about that yeah that's fun. 38 years old it feels uh i i don't feel 38 i feel like i'm like 28 or something like that like physically or mentally Kind of both. I, I I actually don't feel that different physically than I did. I mean, because I I wasn't really like I've always been fairly athletic, but I, I you know I, I I wasn't that different. And I hurt myself like I got all of my big injuries in my late teens because I was like a competitive skier, and uh, it, so all that stuff is just hurt the same for the same amount of time. You know, right. I just have always had a kind of a bad back. One of my legs is longer than the other. So that has like some hip stuff. And, um, but this moving job actually makes me feel better. I think it's like, cause I work out the muscles that are going to would hurt, you know? Interesting. 
It's wow. like a weird backwards physical therapy. And how long have you been doing stand-up? I've been a stand-up for, it'll be 18 years, I think. No, 16 years, 16 years. Wow. It's weird that we're now reaching a spot where it's like, oh, we've been at it a long time. Like I just hit We've been 20 at it years. too long to do something else. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, no, it would be, I mean, comedians joke about that a lot, but it would be funny to try to go get a job and be like, yeah, I worked at uh, the Comedy Connection and the Funny Bone as a comedian. No, I, I have tried to get other jobs and I, you know, like I wrote for TV for a couple of years, nothing special, but I would go to like copywriting you know, I apply for copywriting jobs in like the advertising world, just because like, a lot of them are just comedic. You know, it's either writing jokes, writing catchy things, writing comedic scripts. And I would go to them and I'd be like, well, here's all this stuff I did. And they're like, yeah, that's not what we do. And you're like, no, it's it's imagine your commercials like 10 times the length. And that's a TV show. And they're like, no, that's not what we do. It's different. And like, Literally, like, you know, I've never got, I've worked on a portfolio for like two years and I've never gotten a single bite. It, it's, it's just like they do not see stand up as a complimentary, you know, career choice. Well, this is what makes me crazy. And this may be somewhat off topic, but I've been saying this my whole adult life, which is my whole comedy career. I, it blows my mind that play, that businesses don't hire comedians to write commercials for them they have like advertising people and people that went and studied advertising but to me i'm like comedians would be the best because we know what works like i can read a script or hear an idea and be like that will work because that's what stand-up is you're sitting there going this this will an audience will laugh at this and i feel like a high octane finely tuned version of that obviously i try jokes that eat it at some point but like for the most part you're like Ah, uh, no, that's gonna that's gonna hit. That will work. So it seems like a perfect fit to just get comics to write commercials. And I think sometimes when it's like a bigger campaign and stuff, you'll hear they'll let like go to somebody who's like a pretty successful TV writer or comedian, and they'll ask them to do it. But it's weird because if you go in there just as somebody who is like, well, I've been on TV, you know, ten times, they're like, okay, well, have you written a pharmaceutical ad? And you're like. No, obviously not. And they're like, go away, you know. And then they give it to some guy who's just like, you know, he's just, he's like just studied branding and marketing. Right. Anyways, I don't need to complain about the, I I love being what I am, but it is sometimes like, uh, there's a little bit of it. Like I, I went skydiving and I didn't pack a parachute. So, and I have to land in a pretty small sized pocket of, you know water or something like that i'm great at analogies by the way well that's that's the wonder why you can't get hired um (laughs) but that's what is weird with comedy is it starts to get to a point where you're like all right well i don't your resume starts to look worse and worse the more years you're in where you're like all right i gotta figure out where to go with this now because you know at 40 not having health insurance starts to become like oh shit i better get some of that or whatever yeah i mean i i just uh, I love comedy and I love doing the road, but I'm going to be pretty bummed if I have to like, if I have to like get to Peoria, you know, like it's like I have to play Peoria to make the mortgage, you know, when I'm like 50, 55 and I'm like, I gotta go, I gotta do it. It's like, 
I probably could have fun and enjoy it and be grateful for the booking, but I don't want to do that. You know, like I'd like to, I'd like to have a little fancier life. Yeah. No, a little bit more picky. It becomes hard and it's hard. Cause I know there's a lot of people that aren't in comedy that are listening that are like, yeah, I'm a roofer, dude. It sucks. But it is a thing of like, it does get tricky to be like, cause I remember being a young comic and on the road and featuring and being like, talking to older headliners and being like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm at bananas or whatever. I'm like, are you kidding? I'd kill to be <laughs> yeah, where you're at. Yeah, this is yeah. amazing. But you're you, living. <laughs> you do get older and you're like going to St. Louis for the 11th year in a row. You're like, I've already seen the zoo twice. I've been to a Cardinals game. I've been to that museum. Uh, you start to go, ah, shit. And then there's still a drunk lady whose you know, shoe ankle is snapping because she wore high heels and there's still a waitress <laughs> that's too noisy or, or whatever it is. And, you know, there's still people coming up after the show going, you should stick with it. You're pretty good. Or yeah. boy, a tough crowd. <laughs> and you're like, was it? I thought I killed. <laughs> so there is a lot of things that you're like, boy, this is tough. And then getting on a plane every week. So you do start to be like, shit, I got to figure something out now building a, a, an audience obviously changes things where if you're performing at a, a theater, you'll be able to do four shows instead of seven shows and you're selling out and it becomes a little bit easier and less hard. You can fly first class or stay in a nicer hotel. Yeah. That stuff starts yeah. to get easier, but. It, yeah, I think it's, um, you know, I, I think it's like, I just really have to be, I have to kind of be grateful that I get to do it. And, uh, those kind of things, it, it's just, you know, it's when you stop and you kind of like take stock or you compare yourself to people. Cause you're like, Oh, I made, you know, whatever, two grand this weekend for five shows. And then you think about what your friend made writing on a show and he went home every night and like played with his kids. And you're like, well, fuck that. He did. He made the same amount of money in one day and you know, whatever, that's stupid. I, uh, Going back to what you said, though, about like some people being roofers, I it, through sobriety, I met a lot of um, artists, like visual artists and stuff like that. And they all had jobs that were not what they specifically were known to do or like their main thing. Like most visual artists work as like art handlers or they like assist another artist or they just have some kind of job. And um, when I would complain about having to go to like the moving job, they would just be like, what are you talking about? Like, what? you?" you have to have a job. You are trying to do an artistic creative thing. And if, you know, unless you're part of like a fortunate few and then the rest of the world has to um, also have a job. And usually it's a lot harder. Like, I think it's very funny that like a lot of what makes me upset and a lot of what makes people in show business upset is that they are not rich and famous. <laughs> like, right, it's, like, right, right. it's such an insane thing to be like, I can't believe I'm not rich and famous. And it's right. like that absurd, uh, unlikely kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard. It's, it's very rare. Yeah. No, my uncles are firemen. And they have like side hustles. They're also plumbers and have a plowing business. Like and my uncle's not just like a volunteer fireman. He's like the captain of a fire department. And then also has two other gigs. Cause he's like, yeah, I gotta, I have to supplement being a fireman. Yeah. And he's uh, like, just, I don't think he ever wakes up and he's like, God damn it. Barry's just the, 
he just gets to firefight one day a week <laughs> and he has a boat. <laughs> right, right. No, so it's hard, but no. So what would be your ideal situation? Would it be writing for a show or having your own show or doing stand-up in, in theaters that have people that came to see you? Or have you not I mean, thought about it? No, I have thought about it. I, I, I really, um, I would love to get into that kind of groove of like getting to work on creative things, com- comedic uh, or, you know, writing for shows or my own show and then getting to do stand up kind of on my own terms. I would love to be um, popular enough to do theaters and things like that. But you know, I, I don't feel at home uh, in a lot of circumstances like i i think i i kind i kind of have a cunty nature like i'm kind of like a little pretentious not i'm not saying it's a good thing but like i you know and i i i kind of have this like weird uh i want to have smarter more relevant jokes and then um and then i you know i do that in new york and brooklyn and a couple other cities where it's like everybody gets me and then I get that gig where I go to Calgary, Alberta and everybody is a dairy farmer or an oil worker. And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like <laughs> we don't care about kale or, you know, transgressions or police brutality. And, you know, I mean, it, so it's like, I, I don't know. You, there's this weird thing where it's like, I want it, but I don't necessarily know if I want to go down that road where I have to make everybody laugh. I think I would be, I would like to be the kind of comic that got to work a lot in cities of my choosing. And I'm not trying to be pretentious. I just, you know, some people don't like fucking rock music. Some people don't like jazz, you know, it's just, I think there's a certain kind of, um, that's okay to not be everybody's type of comedy. And uh, getting to just work on shows and get to do comedy on my own terms, however far that brought me, you know, would be great. I would love that. I would love to um, get to like come home at night and uh, have a little bit of a normal life and like maybe every other weekend go upstate to some kind of like nice, uh, peaceful place and, and, you know, go for hikes. Yeah, that all sounds amazing. That's what that's my dream is uh, a house in the Berkshires, in Massachusetts, yeah. and go up every uh, few weeks and just hike for a couple of days and then come back. And like, I also want to nice. have a bunch of uh, animals that are uh, that just get to live there, you know? Yeah. Like, li- like I farm them just just uh, like they're just there. Like I have cows and we just pet them. That's what uh, Sarah always says. She always wants chickens and like wants to get them here in Queens. And I'm like, I don't know if that's a great idea, but um, it'd I'm be funny. It becomes Suvlaki. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be funny if it just kept getting bigger. And you're like, yeah, I just want a farm with like some animals and like a couple cars and like, and then like a place in the mountains also, like a mountain place would be nice. And yeah, a farm. And like, I don't know, like, like a plane, like a, not a big plane, <laughs> but like a plane, just because like for feasibility, I'd like to be able to go to each of them. And then you got to have a car at each place because you don't want to rent every time, you know? You find yourself getting, as you get older, like my things that obviously I started when I was 18 and we kind of touched on this a little bit, like now things that seemed insane. It's, I guess what I'm saying is it's, it becomes inevitable. You get to an age where you're like, Oh, I want that. Where there was an age where I had three roommates and I was like, ah, I don't need my own place. And then yeah, you have yeah. an apartment. And then I'm like a house, the suburbs, yuck. And now I go, now I've lived in New York for 14 years and, 
I'm 20 years into comedy. I'm like, I would kill for a driveway, a, a yard, yeah. oh like a backyard God. and a driveway. A fucking garage? Mm. Jesus. <laughs> oh, do just storage. I'm just at like, I just, I get jealous of storage ability, you know? Yeah. Somebody with a dining room table. Jesus Christ. No, it's amazing. Right. I, I go and visit my parents and like you, you, you park in a driveway and then you go to the supermarket and there's like eight feet in between aisles. And you're like, Oh, I've turned into like a, I'm a fucking, uh, a Karen or whatever you call it, a basic bitch. Or no, something. Yeah. Yesterday I, I had this move where I, um, I took these people out to summit New Jersey and I drove my car to meet the crew so that I could unload with them. And, you know, I'm not even accounting for how uh, awesome my life is that I live in Manhattan and I also have a car. Like those are two pretty hard things to ascertain in the, in the world, you know, out of all 9 billion of us, not a lot of people get to do that. And, uh, but I, I just went to a Trader Joe's. I didn't even need anything. I just went there and I just like, I parked in the parking lot and I like took my time and like, I, I was absolutely in heaven it was so great you know like to just like spread out just casual suburban asshole i literally if you were like do you want to go to uh, a baseball game or wegmans i'd be like i think i kind of want to go to wegmans like just <laughs> well they do have the best cookies of all time yeah um so you're a sober guy now i mean if you don't mind talking about sobriety no. uh you've been sober for how long now Six years. Okay. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm eight years. So we're like similar age and similar sobrieties. It feels like. And also like you've been doing comedy just for your more years than me. We're both kind of, we're the same person. I think yeah. We're, both, we're balding in the same way, except mine still has a little bit of a point here. So that's cool. I mean, I don't know about balding. This has actually just always been my hairline. That's always my been your life. hairline. Yeah. I tried to do a bit about this years ago. No, I, I heard it. Five. <laughs> no, I try to do a bit about people think I'm balling, but I'm like, no, my hair has been like this since I was 12. That's amazing. Like, I just have a high hairline. And then the joke was, it's like my eyebrows and hair are fighting. <laughs> yeah. I'm, this is going to send me down into like a pit now. I'm going to call my wife and be like, oh my God, I'm, I'm balding. Well, I think you're actually better off because what I have is like this thin shadow. And so I think sometimes people see it and they're like, that's so sad. He's trying to hang on. <laughs> No, I don't think of you as balding either. Maybe I'm fucked up. I think we both look great. I think our hair is beautiful. Look at this. This yeah, is luscious. Actually, yeah, I got bleach tips. Not a lot of balding guys can bleach their tips. So maybe I'm doing all right. No, you look fantastic. So were Thanks, you drinking? Man. You drank, I assume, before you did stand-up. Were you like a young drinker? Yeah, I actually started stand-up right after I quit drinking. Like within a like calendar year. So... uh I, I was like the high school party guy. Like I, I hung out with preppy kids kind of, but I went to school in like an urban school. So it wasn't like we were like preppy suburbs preppy, but we were like, you know, kids that wanted to go to good colleges and drink every night we could. Um, and all, you know, from fairly affluent, well-to-do backgrounds, I wasn't very deep. And, uh, I just, I loved getting fucked up. It was like, as soon as I started drinking and that this was like, early high school. I'd, I'd done other drugs, but nothing had really caught. And then I just kept that up. And then once it like transitioned into the ski world, that was a real big drinking slash pot smoking kind of vibe, you know, like 
you skied, you did badass tricks and tried, you know, harrowing stunts on the mountain. And then you came down and everybody got drunk and sat in hot tubs and, you know, life was a party. Um, but I think I always kind of knew that I wanted something more and, uh, got arrested a bunch in college. Um, you know, embarrassed myself, blacked out, kind of came to the terms that I was never going to drink normally around age 22. And I quit drinking for a year, but didn't do anything else, smoked weed. Um, and then slowly started drinking again. It never, it, it was never that bad again. And I kind of had a couple times where comedy and drinking overlapped, but I, it was weird because I had started comedy without drinking. I never could do them together. I'd have like a beer and I'd be totally off my game. I never had that moment. Like some people talk about like getting drunk and doing comedy and being better at it. I never could do it. It was like, it was just like, you know, if I was a musician, my, I was like sticking keys and missing notes and things like that. And, uh, but, but about maybe, I don't know, five years into comedy, I quit drinking for good. And then I just smoked weed and I smoked weed like all day, every day. I just, I, I, I smoked weed just nonstop. And, uh, it was, I, I did, I was, I was high at my comedy central half hour taping. I was high for Conan. I was high for writing jobs. I was high for wow. auditions. You know, I just always smoked weed and I thought it elevated me. I thought it brought me down to a more kind of like uh, euphoric, goofy. And there was some truth to that. But the reality was like all that stuff existed. I just was so jammed up that uh, I, you know, I couldn't access it, you know. Wow. That's, that's interesting because weed to me is I was always a booze guy and weed. I would do whatever. Once I was fucked up, someone was like, we have weed. I'd be like, all right, give me the weed too. <laughs> but like, I, I never did smoked weed without alcohol. Um, yeah. But all right, maybe a couple of times I did, but weed to me made me so paranoid and just feel like a fucking idiot. So it's interesting that you have to just do it every day until <laughs> you break through that. <laughs> Cause I mean like I couldn't, I can't even fathom the idea of smoking weed before a show. Did you get really nervous or anxiety anxious doing late nights and TV or did weed help that? It, I, I like savored the, the kind of schizophrenia of it. My favorite thing to do was to sleep like six hours, smoke, a big, 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 big spliff and then drink a pot of coffee. And so in my mind, it, uh, you know, it was like a John Belushi light. Like that's kind of what I wanted. And so like, I, I don't think it ever worked to my benefit. And I also don't think people could tell that I was high. So it wasn't like I was like, we also, I, I luckily, I really think I'm very fortunate not to have like been a stoner during that like period of time where there was like all this, like, pot related comedy, you right. know, cause I, I would have really leaned into it and I didn't. So, um, yeah, I, I would, I, I, I thought it was benefiting me. I thought it was making me more, I don't know, uh, unique and funny, but realistically I was just probably like a little bit slower, a little bit more disoriented. I don't know. You know, like it, it was, that was the whole thing with weed is I smoked weed all day, every day for four years. And then I looked back over it and it was kind of like, huh? And nobody was telling me to get sober. You know, nobody right. was like saying like, dude, you're ruining your life. It was all very, very under the surface kind of stuff. Well, weed is a weird drug like that. I always think there's something strange, like 
no one's ever like you're a drug addict with weed, but I, there's people in, in the comedy scene that like you're saying, like smoke in the morning and afternoon and night, they're never not high. And to me, I'm like, this, you're a junkie essentially. Like I'm like, you're fucked yeah. up all day, every day. And I don't, I, it's fascinating to me that no one ever thinks of, or maybe they do and I just don't see it, but no one ever really thinks about weed of like, you're a drug addict. Like if you were doing Coke like that, people would be like, you're a fucking maniac. Yeah. And we know people that like, you know, I don't know if we know a ton of people, but I knew people who would be like 38 and they would like live in their parents' basement and they had like the most awesome collection of music. And, you know, they were like happy, happy. Um, I put up quotations for people listening to this and, uh, you know, nobody's ever like that guy has to get his life together. Cause it seems pleasant and it's goofy. And his name is like, you know, he's like, he's like salami Dave or whatever, you know, or, you know, like everybody, you know, but that's a sad thing to be a grown man that, you know, you never really tried to get out of your space or you didn't seize opportunities that you had, or you never had the discipline because you are always disoriented. I, I, I used to have an old joke about it. Like your rock bottoms are too different for anybody to confront you. Like my rock bottom with alcohol was I like, I was like wasted and I tried to fight the cops, you know, and then I got like arrested and I, you know, I didn't have pants on. I, I, I did have pants on, but I said it for the joke. It's not a great joke. And then your rock bottom for weed is that you just, you eat all the Parmesan cheese like by itself, like, you know, <laughs> that's your rock bottom and you don't even think of it as a rock bottom. It's just that your wife one day comes downstairs and sees you eating Parmesan cheese by itself. And they're like, you're a fucking loser. <laughs> right. And just the fact that you're not experiencing, and maybe this is the meditation talking or the sobriety talking, but ultimately you're like, you're not experiencing any of real life. You're, no. you're fucked up all of the time. And so you don't have your full wits about you, your full, uh, awareness and you're not, you're disconnected from everything. Cause you're fucked up on drugs. Yeah. I think when I got sober, you know, I got sober, I was the most successful I'd ever been monetarily when I got sober. Like I, you know, I was making a great living being a TV writer. I was doing stand up when I wasn't writing and I'd done a couple cool things on TV. And then I got sober because I was afraid that I was going to ruin all that stuff. And I really think that I, I kind of had to start over because I, I had just not processed, I, I think, any of the trauma in my entire life up until that point. Like I had just, I'd either gone like, drink, it'll be cool. I'm a badass, like whatever, you know, you just be the wild guy and nobody will ever realize you're sad. And then after that, it was like, I'm just in this cocoon of weed smoke. I'm just in this womb. And I got divorced and I lost jobs and I was sad about things. And I, I just didn't deal with any of it. I just put it all aside. And so when I finally like came out of all of that, there's that initial euphoria of just being able to see and think and, uh, you know, uh, verbalize stuff. And then all of a sudden you realize like, fuck, like I, I've been operating this way for so long by like just suppressing this thing. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, I got to, I, I have to deal with all of this. And I really, I really think I had to like start over and not necessarily just in comedy, but like as an adult, you know? Yeah. But that's a great feeling though, in some ways of like, all right, new beginning here. I'm putting that all behind me. I'm not getting fucked up anymore. And now I have a kind of a fresh 
shot to kind of deal with things. I mean, to me is like the ultimate feel. And that's what I love about sobriety in general is just the idea of like, all right, now I'm going to start taking a different approach, which is a, a process. I still have to remind myself. It's like I was talking about earlier, reading these books or meditating of like, all right, let me try to do it differently. And so much of our instincts is this learned behavior that's beaten into us. And you're like, let me try to take a different approach to these things. Uh, and consciously taking a different approach than our natural instinct is really sort of fun and helpful. And you start seeing results. It's the best. Yeah. I mean, I think it also just like, it makes you a better artist, not to be um, like up my own ass or anything, but I do think that like, you know, it makes you more creative. It makes you more present. It makes, it's like, that's one thing that's hard about the, what I was talking about earlier with, like not wanting to do comedy for people that don't get me. It's like, at the same time, I kind of want to make everybody laugh. And I, you know, I used to like really write a lot of jokes about politics and love to like kind of push the needle or whatever it is. Like I, I like to like rile people up and I don't really want to do that anymore. I kind of <laughs> want to, I agree. I kind of want to make everybody laugh and I want it like, I would love it if somebody was like, um, you know, just, uh, what's that called? Whatever, just different, you know, just, we were, we were opposites and I hated what they stood for, but they saw the humor in something I was trying to say. And then there was that small moment, even if it's just for that night where we just, you know, we, we had that connection. And, and I do think that those types of things where it's like, if you can communicate ideas in a way that makes like, especially through laughter, like if, if you can make somebody laugh at something that they they think they disagree with it. It just moves it enough to where, okay, maybe it's not that serious. And maybe I do have a different opinion on that. Like, I, I don't think that I'm ever going to change the world or somebody's life with like a weekend at the DC improv or whatever, <laughs> right. especially if it's like some guys like a Trump guy. And I tell him he's a fucking idiot and he's part of the wrong side of history, which I, I do it most of the time. But <laughs> if I can make it him, if, if I can make him laugh at a joke about immigration and about Latinos and kind of like Spanish, you know, cause I have a couple jokes like that that were inspired kind of like about my feelings towards those things. Like, I do think that there's a little bit of a shift. It's so infinitesimal, but like that feels better to me than being like, you see these fucking dumbass Trump idiots. They, they want to hang on to America. What's that? You know, it's just like, I'm just tearing apart nobody feels good after that. Right, right. No, and I, I agree with what you're saying too about like there was a time where I was like, I want to be edgy and fucking challenge the crowd. And then you get older and I'm like, I do feel like maybe this is soft or maybe it's bad, but I'm like, ah, these people got babysitters. They came out, they bought a ticket. Uh, let me just give them some laughs. And uh, especially these days, and, and, and there's plenty of people doing challenging stuff or telling people what's what. I'm like, I'll just be funny. Well, I got into comedy. I know this uh, right around the beginning of the Iraq war, the, the one, our Iraq war, not the first <laughs> one. Uh, the sequel. But I, I, I watched a Bill Hicks DVD and I was like, Oh, I want to, I want to be like Bill Hicks. And then um, he was talking about Iraq war and Bush and all that stuff. And so I was like, you know, I was trying to tell all these Iraq war jokes. I was trying to write jokes about like how bad war was and how bad Bush was. And then I did this show one time. I was like two, three years into comedy and it was in Olympia, which is South of Washington or South of Seattle. And, 
there was like these three really buff teens in the audience, like right in the front row. And they like, they just like looked like ghosts and, but they laughed. And then after the show, they came up to me and, uh, they were like, man, that's the first time I've laughed in like a year. And I was like, Oh really? And they're like, yeah, I just got back from Baghdad, you know? And I was just like, fuck, like <laughs> that is, I, I, I don't like war. I don't like military. I, I want us to live in a world where like, we don't have to rely on those types of things. It's very idealistic. It's, it's not realistic right now. I don't think, but, um, I don't want to alienate that guy because I disagree with his profession. I'd way rather make him have a good time and maybe, I don't know. That seems more productive than telling him he's like a baby murderer or something like that. I don't right. Know. Yeah. That's how I feel now too, is like, let me just try to be um, entertaining to people. That's we, my expertise. We really started at an unfortunate time and I don't, I, I know that sounds silly, but uh, we, we started, you started before me, but like, when I started, it was like fucking Hicks and it was, um, it was Stanhope, like a hundred percent Stanhope. I remember that was like the, you know, the legend and I love Stanhope. I think he's one of the greatest of all time, but at the same time, it's like he had this unique ability to be a genius from this blue collar background and talk about these things in a very relatable kind of way. And it, he was uniquely able to do that. And everybody tried to emulate that in, in the yeah. circle, at least that I ran in. Yeah, I I agree. Is this getting too much comedy specific? Sorry. No, maybe, um, but uh, that's all right. Um, I'll, I'll warn them that they can they can dive off before, but I think they like comedy stuff, the audience. Um, but no, I, I agree. There was so many people doing Stanhope and trying to watch people try to do Stanhope, and it was brutal. And I thought about that earlier when we were talking about something. I can't remember earlier we were talking about something, and I thought similarly about the idea of people like, I'm going to do what Stanhope does. And you're like, well, he's very special. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Same with like Patrice. People try to do like a Patrice type of thing. And you're like, no, no, he's brilliant. You're not brilliant. Um, yeah, it's like, there's that ability to say something that should be horrible and make a room full of people laugh, but it didn't just happen. You know, they, they, you know, I think Stanhope did the road for like 10 years before he got anything. And it was like, telling dick jokes until he could finally talk about what he wanted to with the ability to maneuver through that, you know? Yeah, exactly. I think uh -oh. you have to be very talented for people to trust you with the kind of like precious cargo that is a topic that can offend them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And also though, to be fair, again, those guys were operating. I mean, Stanhope's still working now, but things have become very different in the last five to 10 years with. Yes the divide and Trump and social media where now if you start talking about anything that people disagree with, they start, they go, fuck you, fuck this person. Like there's so many people like yeah. that that just aren't having it. So that makes it also very tricky where people might've listened back then. Now it feels like people are people on both sides are just waiting to hear something that they're like, nah, ah, he said that thing. I hate fuck this comic. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a weird time. I think I don't want to be in like the world of like comedy apologists where I'm like, oh, well, that, you know, get over it. It's just a joke. You know, we were just we were just joking about that traumatic thing that happened in your life. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's unproductive to be like, 
you know, like, I feel like there was a lot of privilege used in the writing of that joke. It's like, okay, well, fuck off because I'm just writing jokes, you know? So it's, it's a weird, it's really hard to navigate. No. And I go back and forth. We got to start to wrap up here, but it's hard to, it's hard to end, but I, I go back and forth sometimes too, where I'm like, fuck you, man. Comedy is all ball. And if someone wants to talk about a shooting, well, fuck you. That's the joke. And then there's people like, <laughs> my, my son was shot. I'm, I'm, this is horrible. And I'm like, ah, oh, fuck. Yeah. That's, that is horrible. Shit. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I, I'm like, it's hard. Like there is a thing of like, I love stand up and, and anything goes. And then someone's like, I was so devastated to hear this. And you're like, oh boy, I don't know. sorry to you but these people enjoyed it 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 is tricky it's not it's not simple and people that try to make it simple are part of the problem that this black and white thing yeah i mean i i had a joke where i i made fun of the challenger tragedy right like the the spaceship blowing up and it was like killing and people were like that man that fucking challenger joke jesus christ that's so good and then this guy came up to me and he was like hey dude you should uh I loved your act, but you, you should really be um, a little more conscious of that joke. I mean, that's like fucked up. And I was like, all right, thanks buddy. And he's like, yeah, my dad, uh, my dad was part of the cleanup crew. He said he had to, he, he had to just ride around in a boat for a couple of days, um, just picking up body parts of the astronauts. And I was just like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> man. Am I going to argue with that guy? No, he's totally right to tell me not to fucking tell that joke. No, I had that with like, you know, everyone, we, you know, in private, at least we make, you know, this Holocaust jokes and Jew jokes and the whole thing. And then I went to, uh, you know, um, what is it? Krakow or uh, I can't even think of the fucking Dachau. I think it's Krakow, right? Krakow is a city. It's probably by Krakow. It's in Poland. You went to a what's the main, the main what? Auschwitz. Yeah. Auschwitz. Yeah. Uh, Auschwitz. Yeah. I went there and, uh, <laughs> you're walking around. I'm laughing as I'm saying it, but I'm walking around. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm making jokes. This is insane. Like I can't even it's the worst thing that ever happened. Yeah. Ever. I'm like, I can't even fathom being funny about this. This is like wild, you know, cause you, you're, you're removed from it. And then when you're there, you're like, this is fucking stunning. We shouldn't be making jokes about this. We shouldn't even be making movies about this. <laughs> you're like, this is fucking nuts. So, you know, I, I go back and forth and again, it's just, it's just not a, um, it's, it's, it's complicated stuff, but we got to wrap up, but I just want to share this one uh, memory. I don't even, maybe I've told you this before, but one of the times I, occasionally when I would smoke weed, I would just be silly and something funny would happen. You'd just like die laughing, you know, the idea of weed. Yeah. But maybe we've talked about this, but it was during the Oscars. I think it was the, um, whatever year the blind side was out. And you had a tweet. I don't remember what the tweet was. I have no <laughs> idea what it was, but I was at Jason Canner's apartment. I lived with him at the time. I was in his bedroom and I read your tweet and I was like on my hands and knees crawling around crying. laughing. <laughs> no, you never told me that. Oh, and it was like one of the great memories of my life. I mean, it must've been 10 years ago, <laughs> whatever year that came out. I have, I, I should try to look it up or find it. Were you high? I was high. Yeah. We were oh, drinking okay. and high and I had like an Oscar. I was Oscar obsessed. I'm like a big movie cunt and, and I don't know what the fucking joke was, but I think it was about the blind side and yeah. I was just the right amount of high and drunk. And I read it oh, and man. I could, I, I was trying to, read, was. I was trying to read it to him and I couldn't get it up. Maybe if you typed in blind side on your tweets, I'll, but I'll try I, to find I actually deleted like everything from behind this year. Oh, Jesus. Like, this was like, 
Yeah, because I couldn't go through. I I had just tweeted so recklessly for so long that I, I I never said anything I think that would be cancelable, but I just couldn't remember. So I just deleted everything before 2020. Right. Well, whatever it was, I was like trying to tell Canner the joke and I couldn't even get it out. I was just literally crying. And it's like one of the great laughs of my life. It means a lot to me because I I think you're a a very funny guy. So thank you. Thanks. Well, I've always been a fan. So thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. I hope you had fun. Yeah. Oh, what do you want to plug? You want to throw some things out there? Um, me and my wife have a podcast that we started the first day of quarantine and we've been keeping it going since then. It's, it's a little less about, uh, the quarantine and the pandemic just cause life has resumed, but it's called find your beach. And my wife's name is Rosebud Baker. I just like to plug my wife cause she kind of has a better shot at this. So <laughs> <laughs> she's a past guest. She was on the show a few weeks ago. Oh, okay. A cool. Did she ago. plug, did she plug me? I don't know what she did. Uh, I'm in a she did ruin her. Okay. She, she plugged the podcast, but I don't okay, think she good. said your name. No. In fact, I brought up your name and she, she just did this. She said, <laughs> don't say that. So, can, we, can we cut that last part out? Yeah. Um, um, cool, man. That was great. Thanks so much, buddy. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, dude. Mindful Metal Jacket is hosted by comedian Joe List. Produced by Joe List. Edited by Matt Kleinschmidt. Executive producers Robert Kelly and Matt Kleinschmidt for the Laugh Button Podcasts. 